Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 5, Episode 33, produced by Jesus Centered Resources. It's a, it's a mystery entity that I created oh, a couple months ago as a sort of an umbrella for everything I'm doing now, uh, post my old life and in advance of my new life. So hopefully the next episode of this podcast, I'll give you some new news about my new life. But for right now, um, I am working on books. I'm uh, uh, close to completing a new book that'll be released uh, next year. It's called The Suicide Solution. It's, uh, it's a long story behind how I came to be writing a book about suicide, but it's been something I felt passionately about for a long time. I live in an area of the country where the suicide rate is quite high, and I'm exposed to uh, the aftermath of suicide rather often. Uh, and I've been uh, sort of grieved over the way that we respond to suicide in ways that don't really do anything about this epidemic in the end. So I'm co-authoring a, bo a book called The Suicide Solution with Dr. Daniel Amina from the Amen Clinics. So I'll tell you more about that uh, as it becomes more of a reality, but I'm two chapters away from finishing that. So I've been busy doing that and um, a lot of other uh, aspects of the nooks and crannies of my calling. So. I'm calling all that Jesus-centered resources. Uh, who knows what I'll call it in the future? But I'm also, um, I'm author, uh, as I've been talking to you about, of the soon-to-be-released Jesus-Centered Daily, my 365-day devotional that uh, I worked on for two years. And it really is the summation and the condensation of the last two decades of my pursuit of Jesus and the way that I write about him and the way that I help others to become more intimate with him, all of that's condensed into this daily devotional called the Jesus Center Daily. So if you'd like to learn more about it, um, I built a website, uh, my very own self, I built a website called jesuscenteredaily.com, jesuscenteredaily.com. You can go there and get a free 10-day sampler of the devotional, and you can watch my intentionally amateurish video and you can pre-order your copy. And you can also, there's a button that I put on the site now for you, if you would like to join the launch team to help launch this new little baby, this new little addition to the Jesus-centered family. And as part of that team, you'll, you'll get your copy of the Jesus-centered daily before it releases to the public. Plus, you'll get $5 off. Plus, you'll get free shipping. And the only thing that you have to do to be on the team is to, is to read at least some of it and then post a review of it on Amazon on the week that it releases. Now, and a review can be a sentence. Uh, you don't have to do an in-depth review, but that's all. All that stuff for just posting a little something on Amazon with it. So I would love for you to join this team. I'd love for you to be a part of this. I'd love for you to put your oar in the water with this. I, I believe that this daily experience of Jesus can be life-changing and um, changed my life writing it. So, <laughs> so hopefully it will do the same for those reading it. So again, go to jesuscenteredaily.com and you can get that uh, free 10-day sampler and you can uh, uh, click the button and join the launch team if you'd like. So we're now uh, 11 episodes into this series I'm calling In His Image. This is where we're exploring that statement that God makes in Genesis, that he has created us in his image. And of course, it's not like when we look in the mirror, we're, we're looking at God. It's not that kind of image that God is referring to in Genesis. He's really describing his essence and how he's plant, planted his essence in us, that we are reflective of his own heart. So what does that mean for us? Well, the, the best way to, to understand the heart of uh, the God that we can't see 
is to explore and pursue the heart of the Jesus we can see. Uh, at least we can see him through the pages of scripture. So we are, we're exploring here, what makes Jesus Jesus? What, what is his essence? And how do we reflect that essence in our everyday life? And today we're going to explore compassion. Oh, I can't wait for this one. Uh, so let's, let's uh, use our imagination for a second. Let's say that uh, just for the sake of argument, that the other day I was tossing out this strange multicolored lamp that, that we have. It's a, it's, it, it may have been used as, as sort of a, a vase for flowers at one time, but it, it's in the shape of this lamp and it's, it's kind of got this kind of collage decoupage, multicolored surface on it. I, I don't even remember where it came from, but uh, let's say for the sake of argument here that I was, I was about to throw this little multicolored lamp away when I discovered at the last moment by looking inside of it, that it had a genie inside of it. You know, like one of those lamps that has a genie in it. And I thought, looking at the genie inside, I thought, well, maybe I should keep this because from what I've been told, a genie inside a lamp can grant us any three wishes we want. So let's just say that I have a lamp with a genie in it that will promise you three wishes. Well, what would be your three wishes? Just stop for a second and think about what are the first three things that pop into your head? What are your three wishes? What's, let's take it slowly. What's the first thing that pops into your head? And you can't use the wish that some people in some films have used of wishing that the genie would give you an infinite number of wishes. Let's just call that gaming the system. So these have to be legit wishes. So... Um, all of you know that uh, about two and a half months ago, uh, because of the heavy hit of the pandemic on Group, who I worked with Group for 33 years, I was one of about half of the staffers that was laid off. And so the first wish that pops into my head, if there was, uh, to the genie in the bottle, is that I'd like to get a new job. <laughs> I, I want to continue my trajectory and I want to provide for my family and all of that. So that wish has never been very far from me um, since I found out that I was going to be one of those laid off. So that's the first thing I'd probably ask that genie, but what's the first thing you'd ask? But now that I've babbled on for a little bit, have you thought about what your three wishes would be? Hmm. Now, now think about this. What underlying cares and concerns do your three wishes represent? So in my case, I, I've already tipped my hand there. I, I want to continue the calling on my life and I want to give good gifts. To, uh, I want to give what I have to give and I'm not done giving yet. So I want to continue that in a new trajectory and I want to provide for my family and help them to feel um, secure in our home and uh, so those are, those are things that underlie uh, that first wish I told you about. Th those are some cares and concerns I have. Well, what are yours? When you think about any of your three wishes of the genie, what, what cares and concerns do those represent? And why are those particular cares and concerns the ones that matter the most to you? Why do those things rise to the surface? Well, in my case, um, Mine feel kind of fundamental, you know, um, having a job feels sort of fundamental, uh, at least on this side of retirement and having a job for me that is, is taps into, uh, the gifts that I have to give others is very important to me. It's, it's fundamental to my calling in life. So, so this for me matters a lot because it taps into some fundamental issues in my life. And of course, these are the same fundamental issues that can cause us anxiety and struggle, even depression, right? So when you hear about the cares and concerns of others, even what you've heard me say just now, what are your default reactions? I mean, if you were to share your three wishes with someone in your life and then 
explain to them why you chose those three wishes? I mean, what, what cares and concerns are attached to those three wishes? Do you think that people would feel compassion toward those cares and concerns? Or would they tacitly ignore them? Would it capture the people around you that they know some of your cares and concerns or, or would they fundamentally ignore them? Well, I think we, we, all of us have experience of people responding both ways in our lives. Um, when we hear someone else's cares and concerns or their deepest hopes or their three wishes, what are your, some of your default reactions? Are you thinking about what you can do for that person right there in the moment that might help address one of their cares and concerns? Are you feeling awkward? Like, I want to fix this, but I can't. So you feel awkward and you don't know what to say. Do you feel like, hey, this person just needs to toughen up. You know, life is hard. They need to toughen up here. So you don't really feel that sort of edge of tenderness when you hear someone else's cares and concerns. Does it matter who the person is that is sharing your cares? Is this a person that is always sharing their cares and concerns? And so you're sort of fatigued by it. Or is this a person who rarely shares their cares and concerns? So it really captures your attention. Um, Believe it or not, we can measure our compassion level. (laughs) You know, I I was searching around on the internet to see if that was actually possible. And I'm going to put a a link to a self-test on our podcast episode page. It's, uh, again, go to PeytonRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com, and you're going to look for Season 5, Episode 33. Season 5, Episode 33. I'll put a link to this self-test that was developed by the University of Texas, and you simply answer a series of 24 questions, as honestly as you can. And then, of course, because it's a self-test, it has a, a, a scale that you can uh, plug your answers into, and then you can figure out, well, how you compare. <laughs> and I'll give you a, uh, I'm going to give you a little taste of some of the questions that are on this self-test. So when people cry in front of me, I often don't feel anything at all. And then you have to answer on a scale of one to five. Almost never is one and almost always is five. So when people cry in front of me, I often don't feel anything at all. And I would have to put myself at a one there. I almost never don't feel anything when there's somebody crying in front of me. Uh, Another question is sometimes when people talk about their problems, I feel like I don't care. Hmm. Or here's a third question. I don't feel emotionally connected to people in pain. Now, would you say a one almost never? Or a five, almost always. I don't feel emotionally connected to people in pain. Um, I, I think uh, for me, I'm just thinking about the, the, the different environments that I might be exposed to a person in pain. The environment might matter here uh, because we see so much pain delivered to us through our screens, whether you're on social media or watching television. Sometimes I feel like I do, I am numb to other people's pain when I'm watching it through a screen. So I would say, um, I would put myself in the middle as a three if it's something I'm watching on a screen, but if it's face-to-face and personal, I would put myself as a one that I almost never feel like I'm not emotionally connected to people in pain. I'm actually quite connected to people in pain when they're right in front of me. So let me skip through a few of these other questions. Let's just skip down the list a little bit. If I, I notice when people are upset, even if they don't say anything, I'd say I'm a four or a five on that one. Uh, let me skip down a little bit more. When others are feeling troubled, I usually let someone else attend to them. When others are feeling troubled, I usually let someone else attend to them. Another way of saying that is when you see someone's troubled, are you the first person to respond or do you wait for somebody else? I have to say my wife, Bev, is an incredibly empathetic person. And sometimes when one of my two girls is upset about something, I will let her respond first because uh, as as I'm just thinking about this out loud, um, uh, I know that because of her gift of empathy, that her response, because it's very emotionally engaged, really means a lot to my kids. So I think I've learned to hang back a little bit when when one of my two girls expresses um, struggle or pain. Um, 
So the, these questions, even as I'm going through these, um, are really revealing. Let me just read to you the last one that's on the list, the last of the 24, and then you'll have a, a sampler of these. When others feel sadness, I try to comfort them. When others feel sadness, I try to comfort them. That's a tough one too. I, I think I'd put myself as a four close to almost always, but, I, but the part of me that, that hangs back is I don't always want to take people out of their sadness. Like I don't want to fix their sadness for them. Um, but I think my default setting is to try to, because I'm a man, fix their sadness. Um, so sometimes that comes in the, in the form of comfort. But if you're a man, you'll understand this. Fixing somebody else's sadness, sometimes we translate that as comfort. But if you're a woman, a man trying to fix your sadness does not feel like comfort, does it? <laughs> so when others feel sadness, I try to comfort them. So then um, when, after you've taken this, this self-test, it has six different categories that it scores you in. Kindness, common humanity, mindfulness, indifference, separation, and disengagement. And, and what they're saying is that these six are the components of compassion. Kindness, common humanity, mindfulness, indifference, separation, and disengagement. So these are, you can see that there's three that are positive toward uh, the expression of compassion and three that indicate a reluctance to be compassionate. And um, they have a little um, kind of a footnote to this, uh, to this compassion scale. They studied a little over 400 um, students in the United States. And here are their mean scores. Um, relative to kindness, they were 2.6. So close to the middle. Common humanity, 2.5, again, close to the middle. Mindfulness, 2.3, a little bit less. Indifference, 2.4. Separation, 2.3. And disengagement, 2.3. So all of these numbers are sort of in the middle of the scale. Um, so the extremes, of course, average each other out. Um, but it does say that um, women scored significantly higher on compassion than men on this compassion scale, not breaking news there. Um, it'd be interesting to explore um, the way that God created us, men and women differently, but designed to, to work well together, that we don't have to have um, all of the, the whole gifting of our image of, of God in just the male or female, that, that we represent the full image of God when men and women are together um, together, we, we offer back a reflection that is the holistic truth about the heart of God. So when we recognize that women score higher on a compassion scale, that's, that's something that, um, that helps us to understand how that aspect of women is giving us a, a portal into a spotlight on something that is very true about the heart of God. So so again, I'll put a link to this self-test on our podcast episode page, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, Season 5, Episode 33. Look for the Compassion Scale link there, and you can take it for yourself and give yourself a score. But this, this compassion level is important to explore because uh, the, the image we have of Jesus growing up as little kids is that he's just a super nice guy. And on this podcast, we've tried to sort of explode that myth <laughs> that that is the primary way that we see Jesus is just a, a, a sort of a passive, kind, tender person all the time, which he clearly was not. Um, he spent a lot of his time um, helping people to experience his edge. <laughs> I guess that's the best way to say it. However, it's easy to forget that though Jesus was scandalously offensive to so many um, that, that uh, encountered him, he was also scandalously kind to so many. And what I mean by that is he was tender and kind to people that the ruling political and religious establishment said you should never be tender and kind to. And he scandalized himself almost as often with those he was tender to as those he was offending. Uh, in fact, uh, you can say that part of the plot 
the murderous plot to kill him emanated out of his kind and tender outreaches to people that the ruling establishment establishment said you should not be doing that with. So Jesus was quite compassionate, but what kind of compassion did he offer? And how how is that compassion reflected in us? And how can we live in the kind of compassion that Jesus gave others more often? So I thought it'd be interesting to explore here Uh, a well-known story from Matthew chapter 22. So if you're not driving right now and you want to flip open your your Jesus-centered Bible to Matthew 22, by the way, the Jesus-centered Bible, I'm the the general editor of that that Bible, was released five or six years ago now, and it's it's unique in that throughout the uh, Old Testament and the New Testament, no matter where you are, we've put in special features that draw your attention to Jesus, no matter what page you're reading on. So Please, if you have never uh, explored getting a Jesus-centered Bible, now would be the time. Just uh, just go to Amazon, or you can go to group.com and search for Jesus-centered Bible. It comes in like five colors. So there you have it. So if you're not driving and you can crack open that Jesus-centered Bible, go to Matthew chapter 22. And there's a, there's a well-known story in here where the Pharisees and religious leaders approach Jesus um, because they're upset that they've noticed that his disciples are not ceremonially washing their hands like you're supposed to. Like uh, you're supposed to follow some very particular um, habit patterns if you're going to maintain your, your uh, soul holiness. Meaning the ceremonial washing of hands is a metaphoric symbol that, uh, that, that communicates that your heart is clean to. And it's a rule that these religious leaders follow and they notice that Jesus' disciples aren't following it. So they, they want to, they've had enough of Jesus at this point. We're in Matthew 22 now. So they've had enough of him. They're looking for ways to trap him into saying something that they can punish him for. So this Pharisee is scheming when he asks Jesus, uh, in, starting in verse 36, teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And Jesus replied, well, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And a second is equally important. Now, Jesus, now, now this Pharisee would have tracked right with him when he, when he answers this way, love the Lord with all, uh, your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, and he's saying this is the first and greatest commandment. The Pharisee would have been thinking this is, this is the only greatest commandment. But Jesus adds a little PS onto this. He says, there's a second one that is equally important to the one that you think is the only one. And the second one is, love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based only on these two commandments. So, Jesus is saying all of life really is condensed down to these two things. Give yourself wholly to Jesus, to me, risk everything to follow me because your heart's been captured by me. Give yourself wholly because you've been captured wholly. I don't want you to give me the compartments of your life. I want to capture your whole life. I want all of it. I want all in, not some. This is why, by the way, we started an online community called The Pigs. There's a chapter in my book, The Jesus-Centered Life, that is called Living a Pig's Life. And it's, uh, a, a, it's referencing a, a t-shirt um, slogan that says, be the pig. And uh, a friend of mine said that his daughter had won that t-shirt as a customer service award at a high-end restaurant where she was a waitress. And I asked him, well, what does be the pig mean? And he said, it references how the chicken gives part of themselves for breakfast, an egg, but the pig gives everything. (laughs) So be the pig means giving giving all of yourself and not because we should give all of ourselves. That's what the church often tries to say to us, that we should love Jesus with all our heart because we should. It's what we're supposed to do. It's our duty. But Jesus doesn't want us to give our whole heart simply because it's our duty. In the same way, you wouldn't want someone who is your romantic partner 
to give you all of their heart because they thought they signed on the dotted line and they said they're supposed to. I remember I signed that, that marriage certificate, so I, I guess I'm going to have to give you my heart. <laughs> we don't want that. We want to capture our beloved's heart, and so does, so does God. He wants all of our heart because we've been captured by him. So, so that's, that's, the first, that's the first law when the, the rabbi, when the, when the Pharisee says, what's the most important commandment? That's the first one. Um, but the second one, um, the second one, love your neighbors yourself. That, the best way to translate that, I think, is to treat your neighbor's concerns and struggles and pain as if they were your concerns and struggles and pain. Loving your neighbors yourself means um, treating their concerns and their, their difficulties, their challenges, their life story as if it was your life story. So, so what does it mean to love our neighbor then? especially in the time of COVID, for instance. So here we are caught in the middle of a tense and divisive culture where the question of what it means to love our neighbor is a big deal. So masks and quarantines are designed to serve our neighbor. A lot of people still have confusion around the purpose of wearing a mask, that it's really to keep me from being exposed to the virus, and it's not at all. My mask exists to make sure that I'm not infecting anyone else. My mask doesn't exist for me, it exists for the other. I wear a mask because I care for the other in my life. It's not primarily about me. And the more that we adopt this as a profound way to care for our neighbor, the less likely our neighbor is to be infected by a virus that could either not impact them at all or kill them. Um, I mentioned before, I'm working on a book called The Suicide Solution with Dr. Daniel Amina from the Amen Clinics. And Daniel and I were talking the other day and he, he said, um, the COVID virus itself has an element of satanic evil to it. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, because it kills some people and doesn't impact at all other people, it, this virus leaves itself open to creating great division in our culture, which is uh, exactly the way the enemy of God tries to destroy the people of God by bringing division into their midst. And this virus is tailor-made for that. I thought it was a profound perspective. So what does it mean to love our neighbor? Well, I just gave you the case for why masks and quarantining are uh, a kindness toward our neighbor. But then on the other side of things, let's take quarantining in particular. Um, when we quarantine people, we're also um, impacting their livelihood and their jobs. My, my own job was eliminated because of the pandemic restrictions. Um, so uh, by quarantining, we're also hurting people. My 17-year-old uh, uh, daughter, Emma, is a high extrovert. And this quarantine time has been extremely difficult for her and really for all teenagers who find their identity and their sort of their uh, base level um, of uh, uh, wellness in their lives or well-being in their life by being with others. Community matters a great deal to teenagers. And a lot of that has been taken away. And I've watched the impact that it's had on my, on my daughter, Emma, and it's been severe at times. It's been very difficult for her to navigate this. So is quarantining then loving my neighbor? Um, yes and no. <laughs> so how do we make decisions about this? Even, even my home ministry, we have about 20 teenagers that, um, that we've been leading for now, going into our seventh year now. We're right now um, conducting and leading our highly interactive and experiential group in our backyard so that we can socially distance. And the way I do that is I, I put hula hoops in three or four person clusters around the yard. Each cluster, um, the hula hoops are six feet apart from each other. And when our young people come into our backyard, they're given a number and they go to that, the cluster that corresponds to their number and they sit in one of the hoops and they don't leave that hoop until we're ready to go. And once they're sitting there in the hoop, they can take their mask off because we're more than six feet apart outside. 
But when we get up to go, they have to put their mask back on. So this is our way of trying to uh, find the middle path of wisdom in loving our neighbor. We are trying to address our kids' need to grow in their relationship with Jesus in an interactive, face-to-face, experiential way while still uh, honoring social distancing and caring for our neighbor by not um, doing things that obviously put them at risk. We're trying to walk the, the wise middle path. So this question, what does it mean to love our neighbor? If it sounds familiar, well, in Luke's account of this encounter that Jesus has with this religious leader, in Luke's account, Jesus's answer to this, love your neighbor as yourself, is a second and equally important commandment. His answer makes this Pharisee want to justify himself. So he asks, well, who is my neighbor? He's really saying, well, what does it mean to do this? He's a rule follower by definition. He's a Pharisee and a self-justifier. That's why he's trying to trap Jesus in this question. He wants to trap Jesus in the net of the uh, hundreds and thousands of rules the Pharisees and religious leaders have added to the Ten Commandments. That, that rule following and self-justification really is a way of life for these people. And so this guy, when he asks, who is my neighbor, he wants to make sure he's right. He wants Jesus to sort of rubber stamp the decisions he's already made about his life. He's, he wants Jesus to confirm what he's already decided to do as right and justified. So uh, he's about to discover that Jesus refuses to do that. When it comes to caring for our neighbor, living compassionately toward others, Jesus is just not that interested in marking the right check boxes for us, not for this guy and not for us. Jesus has shocking standards for compassion. And um, we know this is true because his answer to this Pharisee, we call the parable of the Good Samaritan. So instead of answering him directly, he tells him a story. Now, if you want to follow along, if you're, again, if you're not driving, you want to crack open your Jesus-centered Bible to Luke 10, go ahead and flip over to Luke 10. Here is the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is how Jesus answers this man's question, who is my neighbor? Jesus replies with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. And then a temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there. But then he also passed by on the other side. And then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. And then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. And the next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits, Jesus asked. The man replied, well, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said, right, now go and do the same. Go and do the same. Jesus is just so shrewd and upending. He understands what this guy's motivation is. So he tells him a story that uh, is absolutely shocking to the people who heard it. Way more shocking than we hear it when we hear it today. Um, let me prove that to you. Let's, let's do a little exercise here. For each character in this, in this parable of the Good Samaritan, Let's brainstorm what I call a contemporary equivalent for that person. So let's, let's take each person in the story and think of what that person might be if this story was told today, right? So let, let's think of uh, the context for all of this and who these people were that Jesus was describing. And let's see if we can figure out uh, a likely equivalent for that for each person in today's culture. So for example, <clears throat> the Jewish man who's attacked by bandits. Let's think about this for a second. So this Jewish man is, is in the uh, upper class, let's say. And the, and the reason I'm saying that is because the, 
the Jews, though they were living in occupied territory, the Romans were occupying their territory, the Jews were still at the top of the heap. If you were a Jewish man, you were the cream of the crop in that culture underneath, this, uh, underneath your Roman occupiers. So and the first thing we know about him is that he's from the elite, I guess you could call it, and he's attacked by bandits. So he looked like uh, rich enough to rob, let's say. He looked like a, a worthy person to go attack. There are probably many people on the path, but the bandits attack this, this man. Why? Well, um, he looks like somebody that if I did attack him and rob from him, I, I might actually get something from him. He's not a beggar. He's not a despised Samaritan. He's someone from the in crowd. So a, an equivalent for today might be that maybe he was a hedge fund manager. Um, let's, let's give him that persona. So this guy is a well-to-do uh, financial leader, a hedge fund manager. Let, next, let's take the priests. So in the story, um, a priest comes along and he sees this man by the side of the road who's been beat up, stripped, and he's half dead. And the, and the priest comes along and he sees the man lying there and he crosses to the other side of the road and passes him by. So what's an equivalent to the priest? So clearly he's a religious leader um, who is walking down the path and he sees a man um, uh, in tremendous need. And instead of meeting his need, he passes him by. So this priest is a high up leader. Um, he's not just a, a, a temple assistant who we'll get to in just a second. He's someone who's a leader, a well-known leader in the church because he's a priest. He's a highly respected person in the church. So um, you can think of who's the most highly respected person um, in your life who is a religious leader. Um, who is that person? Maybe it's the pastor of your church, or maybe it's uh, someone you listen to on a podcast, like this one, for instance. <laughs> who, who, is it, who is the person that you feel like is highly respected um, as a religious leader? For me, the, just the name that pops into my head is Tim Keller. I have a lot of respect for Tim Keller, who is a pastor of a large church in New York City and a well-known author. So I'm going to plug Tim Keller's name into the blank next to the priest. So the Jewish man is a hedge fund man manager, and the priest who walks by, I'd, I'd, I'm not suggesting, by the way, that in real life Tim Keller would walk by, but for the sake of this story, let's say the person is Tim Keller. The next person is a temple assistant. So this is somebody who works in the church, but isn't really a leader in the church. It's a, a person who serves in the church, maybe sort of like a parachurch person. So let's just say that the temple assistant is someone who works for Habitat for Humanity. Let's just give that persona to that person, a person who works for Habitat for Humanity. Um, and then the despised Samaritan, who could that be in our culture? Who is the most despised person you can think of? Hmm. The name that pops into my head, and this is an old one, but he's universally despised. So let's just say he's not a, he's not a Jew. He's not, a, he's not in our tribe. Um, how about if we choose Osama bin Laden? Can you get more despised than that in our culture? Uh, I don't think so. And then the last character, uh, the innkeeper, is a person who um, uh, simply runs an inn. <laughs> um, so maybe what we would, uh, the, the person we could plug in for that is the owner of a B&B, &B, right? Uh, someone who uh, uh, runs a B&B &B somewhere. So there we have our five characters. But now let's brainstorm a story that includes all the characters that maps to the parable of the Good Samaritan, but is more contemporary. So what we would have to say is that this uh, hedge fund manager was traveling from Washington, D.C. down to Boston. And um, he, let's say that he, he uh, gets a flat tire by the side of the road, and um, he's 
far away from help, far away from a gas station or anything else. So he's trying to call AAA, but um, someone sees that he's stuck by the side of the road with a flat tire and they, they stop their car behind him. And, and three, uh, three guys get out, led by, um, well, let's say, led by <laughs> uh, three WWE wrestlers. <laughs> they're, they're just huge. Um, and they at first come up to this hedge fund manager on the side of the road and they offer to help him. And he's very appreciative, but he feels kind of tense looking at them. When he turns around to get his tire iron out of his trunk, they grab him and they beat him up until he's unconscious. And they, they go through his, his three-piece suit looking for his wallet and his watch and his ring and anything else they can find to strip him of. They drag him around behind the car so other cars can't see what they're doing. And they, um, and they just fleece him. And they go through his car looking for other stuff that they can steal. And uh, as soon as they're finished stealing whatever they can, they hop back in their car and they take off, leaving the guy by the side of the road where you can't even see him to die. And by chance, along comes Tim Keller. Maybe he's driving to a speaking engagement. And he slows down in his car to see what's going on there. He sees, he sees the guy's feet sticking out from behind the car. But when he sees it, he thinks, uh, I don't have time to get involved in this. I, I'm about to go speak. That The church that I'm supposed to speak at is waiting for me. I can't stop. Somebody else surely will stop and help this guy. So he, uh, he pulls his car out of the right lane and into the fast lane on the left and just passes by. And then next... Uh, uh, this person who works for Habitat for Humanity is, is driving by, and uh, he tends to be a, a compassionate person. Look at the career he's chosen, working with Habitat for Humanity. So when he sees this car by the side of the road, and he sees fit, feet sticking out on the other side of it, he actually stops behind the car, gets out of his car, goes up to look at the man, sees that he's been beaten into unconsciousness, and then doesn't know what to do. Um, he, he sees him, but he feels overwhelmed with the man's needs. And like, if he, he helps him, maybe those thugs will come back. Whoever beat this guy up will also track him down and beat him up too. So he hops back in his car, feeling guilty, but nevertheless, he drives off. And then along comes Osama bin Laden. Now, driving along the road. Now, this is where you have to obviously use your imagination. A, he, was, <laughs> he could not drive a car in America, and B, he's uh, no longer with us. But let's just imagine Osama bin Laden comes driving along, and he sees this car parked by the side of the road, and he stops to get out because he sees there's a man behind it. And it's shocking when we see Osama bin Laden express compassion for this man. And going over to him, the Osama bin Laden soothes his wounds. Um, he, he pulls out his first aid kit out of his own car and begins to dress the wounds this man has. And he gives him a, a, a sip of water to help bring him back into consciousness. And then he drags the man and puts him in his own car and drives him to a nice B&B &B that he sees by the side of the road. It's a, it, they're, they're advertising this B&B &B by the side of the road. So he gets off, takes the man inside the B&B, &B, beaten up and bloody, and he he looks at the person behind the desk and says, this man needs care. I can't stay, but I'm going to give you money to take care of him. I will get him to his room, and I've given you enough money that you can give him food, and I'm going to call a doctor to come visit him, and I will make sure that all of his bills are taken care of. In fact, I'm going to give you uh, rent for his room. Uh, the, the price of his room right now ahead of time, but I'm going to come back here in a day or two and check on him and I will take care of any other uh, bills he has as well. Here's my card. Here's how you can get a hold of me. So the innkeeper looks a little, <laughs> looks a little uh, like what is going on here? I, I'm not sure about this, but the man has offered him a lot of money. So he thinks, you know, I can use that money. I'm going to take this guy in. So there's a contemporary equivalent. Um, and then Jesus asks again, the Pharisee, 
which one was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits. And in our case, we'd have to say it, even though it's hard to say this, Osama bin Laden was. Now, that is, of course, over the top, and it's shocking. And there's something wrong about it, isn't it? Even telling that story, it was probably hard to listen to because we just can't imagine someone who's responsible for so much death and terror responding compassionately to somebody uh, in, the, in a story like this. And yet this is the, exactly the kind of shock that Jesus intended with his listeners. This is exactly what he wanted this religious leader to feel is just like repulsion over this story. So we're uncomfortable listening to it and we're uncomfortable with it because it smashes some of the compartments and boundaries that we keep in order to make sense of our world. Um, this Pharisee asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? Because he wants the world to make sense. There are some people that we care for and some people we don't. And that's how I know what to do in any particular situation. Which category is the person in? Sound familiar? Feels a lot like the culture we're in right now. I will care for and have compassion for certain categories of people, and I won't with others, and I'll find ways to justify it. Maybe I'll even ask Jesus to justify it for me. And instead, what Jesus responds, he responds not with a formula, not with compartments, but he goes right after the heart. Um, and he goes right after the heart by telling an upending, offensive, scandalous story that really it creates dissonance and frustration and anger in the people listening to it. How can this story be true? So why is Jesus exactly telling this story? Why would he go to such great lengths to tell such a uh, obviously offensive story? What do we know about why he would tell the story? So, so I, I think um, the first thing we know is that Jesus was interested in smashing the compartments that were commonly accepted. He, he, he wanted uh, compassion to be considered as an expression of the heart, not an expression of predetermined, predetermined judgments about people. Um, if you remember, uh, Jesus said that uh, God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, and the sun comes up every day for the just and the unjust. He's trying to help people understand that from God's position, he is constantly in this story. He is always helping people who are um, considered by society despised. He is always helping people who, quote-unquote, don't deserve his help, right? Um, and that would include you and me. There, this issue of justice and who deserves kindness and compassion and who doesn't will come back to bite you if you consider how you yourself are not worthy of compassion if that's the scale that we're using. I mean, if, if sin is the scale we're using and we put ourselves in the compartment that includes uh, everyone who has sinned, and therefore we don't deserve compassion if we're in that compartment, well, Jesus is trying to say, well, this is God's perspective as well. I mean, if you say that a, a despised Samaritan cannot be the hero of this story, then neither can you be the hero of the story, <laughs> because you are uh, on the level that you are despising this person, um, you are equally culpable to sin, but you have judged yourself relatively a good person, and you have judged the despised Samaritan, in this case Osama bin Laden, as a bad person. Therefore, um, they should never be put in a story in the role of a hero. In fact, I would have to agree. I would never write a story that makes Osama bin Laden the hero of anything. He is, he, he is responsible for so much destruction, so much evil in the world. Why would we ever do that? 
And here Jesus is upending these sensibilities and trying to give us a picture into his own heart that the, the things that we do are so in so contrary to the kingdom of God and to his, to his heart that if we say that, that we're on a sliding scale and that's why we deserve his compassion as opposed to somebody who's at the lower end of the scale, well, Jesus is saying, I don't, I don't think like that. That is not the nature of my compassion. Um, the nature of my compassion is to love the, the person behind the actions, to, to, to find the beauty um, behind the sin in that person and to draw it out. Compassion is not really dependent on the behavior or circumstances of the person. The compassion is really dependent on the, the nature of the heart. So listen, there's, there's two groups of people that Jesus troubled the most. Um, they would be called the rich and the religious. So if you think about the, the kinds of people that Jesus had a problem with, and one of them's in this story, this religious leader, he almost always was trying to trouble these people. If you were rich or religious, he was trying to upend you. Um, so think about this. If, if you're an American listening to this podcast right now, or in your, you're in the Western world, and you have a change of clothes, and you, you feel like your next meal is guaranteed, you know where your next meal is coming from, and let's say you have an access to a car, you're in the top uh, 0.01% of affluence in the history of the world, right? Just with those three things. We are, um, in Western culture, the most affluent people in the history of the world. By far, it's not even close. And if you're listening to this podcast, well, you must have some religious interest in your life. So guess what? All of us, including me, talking to you right now, we are, we are in both groups. We are both rich and we are religious. So if Jesus was in our midst right now, sitting here, he would certainly be troubling us because that's what he did with the rich and religious. He would be troubling us with stories and standards that would upset our sensibilities and disrupt the common ways we think about other people and would um, put into a spotlight the, the level of our compassion because we're blind in these two arenas. We would be troubled by Jesus if he was here. So here's, here's a warning for us relative to compassion for those of us who are in these two camps, the rich and the religious. This comes from Matthew 15, and we'll close with this. Um, this is Matthew 15 in the first 12 verses. So again, if you're not driving and you want to take a look into this, into this story, here we go. Some Pharisees and teachers of religious law now arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. And they asked him, why do your disciples disobey our age-old tradition? For they ignore our tradition of ceremonial hand-washing before they eat. And Jesus replied, and why do you, by your traditions, violate the direct commandments of God? For instance, God says, honor your father and mother. And anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father and mother must be put to death. But you say it's all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you. For I vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. Well, in this way, you say they don't need to honor their parents. And so you cancel the word of God for the sake of your own tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. For he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. Then Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear. Listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. You are defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you realize you offended the Pharisees by what you just said? Look, the message here is, if we decide to compartmentalize our compassion, if we decide through our political or religious beliefs that we will express compassion only to those that we have pre-approved, if we decide that we'll withhold compassion from some people and use religious or even political reasons for withholding that compassion, we are risking being on the wrong side of what Jesus is saying here. 
We can't serve our religious and political agendas and ignore compassion, or we will find ourselves on the bad side of Jesus. No doubt about it. He will tell us, as he told these Pharisees and teachers of religious law, that we honor him with our lips, but our hearts are far from him, and that our worship is a farce, and that we teach man-made ideas as commands from God. I think there can't be anything more important to hear from the lips of Jesus right now in our culture than a warning about teaching man-made ideas as commands from God. Because Jesus is saying, that will indicate and, and show me that your heart is far from me. If you are not close to my heart and immersed in my heart, um, it will show because you'll teach man-made ideas and treat them as if they're commands from God, which is essentially what these Pharisees and teachers of the law were doing. These, these people were not only religious leaders, but also political leaders in, in this culture. So the, the teachings that they were giving, Jesus is hammering as a farce and far from him. So I have to say, um, one of the things that, that I just did to try to live out and honor and receive this warning from Jesus is I just finished reading um, Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates, which was, uh, won the American Book Award. Um, I think it was last year or the year before it won the American Book Award. Um, and is a New York Times number one bestseller. I hadn't read it, but my daughter Emma had, and so it was in the house, and I thought, I want to read this because it's an account by a very good writer, Ta-Nehisi Coates. Uh, um, uh, and it's an account of what it, what it has felt like and what it currently feels like to be African-American in American culture. So the, the book is written like a letter to his 14-year-old son, describing to him what he needs to know about growing up black in this culture. And so it, it's a half memoir because Tanasi Coates talks about his upbringing in urban Baltimore and all of the struggles and, and difficulties he faced growing up in that culture. Um, <clears throat> and, and then part of it is also a, a shot across the bow um, in our culture today about how uh, African-American people still feel treated by the default racism that they've experienced in our culture. And, and um, what's interesting about the book is that Tanasi Coates, unlike most people in the black community who um, are uh, God-believing people, Tanasi Coates is an atheist. So I read a book by an atheist African-American describing what it feels like to grow up black in this culture. And I, I tried to simply open my heart to what he was trying to say. And the, the book had a powerful impact on me. It also left me longing for him to find the thing that is missing in his life. Uh, it, it just left me longing for him that he somehow, through all of the pain and struggle and difficulty that he has survived in his life, that somehow he could find truth from the lips of Jesus that draws him. But as, as of right now, he hasn't. But this was in part a way for me to humble myself and, and try to understand um, a, a, a lifestyle, an upbringing, a culture, and an and a emotional, spiritual, uh, intellectual reality that is very different from my own. To, to reach out of my own bubble and try to live for a little bit in someone else's bubble, at least through a well-written memoir. So I'd encourage you in this current climate that we're in, it's not a long read, but I'd encourage you to, to read Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me, and remember Jesus' uh, Jesus's parable of the Good Samaritan as you do, and let, him speak, let Jesus speak to you through the words of Ta-Nehisi Coates. Let's just close in prayer here for a second. Jesus, we hear you, we see you, we love you, we believe in you. But just like the man who's, who said to you, I believe, help my unbelief, we need the same thing. We need help with our unbelief. Please plant in us the same heart of compassion that you have. Help us to understand what it means to live compassionately the way you do. In your name, amen. All right, gang, thanks again for listening. This is 
uh, paying ridiculous attention to Jesus. If you want to uh, go to paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com, you can look for season five, episode 33, and click on the links associated with this episode, including that uh, compassion scale I told you about. You can also click on a link to join the launch team for the Jesus Center Daily, um, or you can just go to JesusCenterDaily.com and, and uh, click on the button there. So there you have it. Uh, paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus is a podcast that emanates from RickLawrence.com. You can subscribe on Google Play or iTunes, and we'll talk again next time.